thought I'd start over here and make an entrance through the arch. What do you think? That worked. (laughs) I thought that uh, it's probably the only church in Tulsa where the preacher will be preaching in an air-conditioned desert. (laughs) Doesn't happen very often. So So this morning, we're going to talk about church. So as I am wont to do in most of my sermons, we're going to try to start with a little bit of church humor that you might like. Let me start with the top seven ways you know you're in a bad church. Number seven, the church staff consists of the senior pastor, associate pastor, and the socio pastor. (laughs) Probably not a good church. The Bible they use is the Dr. Seuss version. Samuel I Amuel, I guess, right? There's an ATM in the lobby, actually. There's churches that do have ATMs in the lobby. Worship services are BYOS, bring your own snake. Palette, how about karaoke worship time, huh? You want to try that? Ushers ask when you come in, smoking or (laughs) non-smoking? And how about this, the only song the organist knows, we don't really have an organist, although Jim plays the organ sometimes, is Inagata De Vida. (laughs) Oh, you didn't hear it. Very famous for an organ solo, so. But when we have an organist, that's the only song Jim knows, we'd all be in trouble, so. So, I thought about this as well. This Moses, he comes down from the mountain, he's read the Ten Commandments, and he says, I was just messing with you on that last one. Chocolate and pizza are still okay. <laughs> Good thing that's not part of the Ten Commandments. And here is a uh, traditional St. Peter's at the, St. Peter is at the pearly gates, and he says, And to you who did not actually go to church but watched it on television, you will not actually go to heaven but will be allowed to watch it on television. (laughs) I don't know if that was before or after COVID, huh? And here's a guy sitting with his wife. He says, I love this church. I do practically anything for it. I mean anything other than actually join it and tithe and work and such. And then there's this, I ask God to let me see you the way he sees you. So, speaking for both of us, knock it off. (laughs) As with all good humor, there must be some element of relatable truth to make it funny. And sometimes some of these kinds of humor, uh, humorous stories illustrate truths about people, how they think about the faith, how they think about their commitment to the Lord, to each other, and how we do church. And so does a Peanuts cartoon. Some of you may have seen this. It's a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy demands that Linus change the TV channels. And then she threatens him with her fist if he doesn't. And Linus says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asks Linus. And Lucy responds, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) And so Linus says, what channel do you want? Truth is, there is power when we are together. There's power when we're together. There's power to accomplish more than we can accomplish working on our own. Our VBS this week is a great example of that. Look around, just in the auditorium. If you want to walk upstairs, if you want to walk in the uh, fellowship hall, it takes a lot of people to do that. Can you imagine just one or two people having to do all of that? There's power in our personal lives. There's power in our individual 
faithful walks with God that's just not possible when we are isolated from one another. There was a time in my life when I didn't truly understand that there was strength in believers moving through life together. There's strength available for you and me in our commitment to Christ, in our commitment to a common purpose, in our commitment to one another. In fact, in the early years I was at TCF, I didn't really get this. In my first six or seven years at TCF, I was a pretty regular attender, but I must admit I could find a wide variety of reasons to not come to church on Sunday morning. Most of those reasons I would not consider adequate for me today. I typically slept much later than I do today. Back in those days, those of you who know me well know that I go to bed early and I get up early. I love to sleep in on Saturdays and Sundays back in the early days I was at TCF. I'll tell you how much I love to sleep in. The service didn't even start at TCF in those early days I was here until 10.30. And I still use sleeping in as a reason to miss church. Sleep wasn't, uh, wasn't the only reason that I missed church sometimes. Sometimes I missed it because my Celtics were on TV and I didn't want to miss the 11 a.m. or noon tip-off. I was involved in two different house churches in my first three or four years at TCF, both of which eventually disbanded for different reasons. And then I spent about four years away from fellowship in house churches. I got out of the habit of attending. We can have good habits, we can have bad habits. And I found it very hard to get back into that routine until I joined what is now Piccolo House Church when Willard and Nettie started that group, and I've been part of that group ever since. Now another thing I remember about those early years that I attended TCF is there was a very strong culture of devotion and commitment to being in church and not just on Sundays. Back then it seemed to be a little much, actually, because of the amount of time that you were expected to be here, especially if you were in any kind of leadership. I was actually asked in the early 1980s to consider taking the leadership training course. We called it the DTS, or no, the uh, MCS, uh, Maturity in Christ series. And that would put you on a path to being a house church leader. But when I saw the level of commitment that was required, weekly meetings, often more than once a week, and that was in addition to Sunday morning and whatever night your house was on, I said, no thanks. There was almost a sense of legalism, the unspoken idea that if you didn't show up for everything there was to show up for, Sunday morning, Sunday night, house church, leaders meetings, Bible studies, outreach opportunities, you name it, that somehow you weren't living the Christian life adequately. So in some ways, TCF changed. And honestly, I think that's good. The pendulum has definitely swung. But if you think of that analogy of what a pendulum is, what usually happens? The pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. And I do have to admit that I sometimes wonder if some of us in this fellowship have swung sometimes to the other end of the commitment scale. From one end of the pendulum swing where the church expected you to be at everything, every time without excuse, to the other end of the pendulum swing where we come to church if it's convenient around and I realize that certainly doesn't apply to everyone here and I think that probably some of you are thinking well this doesn't apply to me at all I'm here almost all the time I only miss when I absolutely have to 
And if that's true of you, don't tune out, because the things we're going to hear about the body this morning are things that we can rejoice in, even if you don't feel a sense of conviction with these things at all. But certainly that doesn't apply. I know how many of you have spent many hours here this past month or so preparing the church for VBS, and those people are the same ones who are here this morning, and they're here most Sunday mornings, and they're almost always in house church, they're almost always at prayer meetings. And let me be quick to note this too. Okay, how about how about if I just move to this mic here, okay? Because all the stuff I'm saying is very important. There we go. And I don't want you to miss anything. I don't believe I ever want to get back to the other end of that pendulum swing, that place that TCF was in, I believe, 35 or 40 years ago. I wasn't an elder then, so I'm recalling my observations as one who sat in the seats every week and saw what was going on. But I believe where TCF was 35 or 40 years ago on some of these matters of commitment and church attendance could be seen as a kind of legalism. It was almost a mentality of works what I had to do to live up to a standard, and it sometimes seemed to lack a little bit of grace. I really don't want to go back to that, and I don't think we should go back to that. The leadership of this church always wants you to hear from the Lord for yourself about what you are to be involved in. And if you're missing church sometimes, for whatever the reason, that's most often between you and the Lord. And, of course, there are legitimate reasons to miss being with your church family. That's not for me to decide for you. Now, we will always encourage you to be in fellowship, but being in church is never about living up to a standard of attendance, just like being a Christian is not about living up to a standard. It's about grace, isn't it? Just like I wouldn't tell you how much to give, okay, but I will tell you what the Bible says about giving. So this morning, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm not going to tell you when and where and how you should be involved at TCF, but I am going to tell you what the Bible says about commitment to the fellowship. Being a Christian is about responding to the free gift of God's grace. Being together on Sunday mornings is about the same thing. It's about being the church. It's about being a family. It's about being this little corner of the body of Christ we call TCF. You know what? We should want to be in fellowship, just like we should want to give. We always need to be guided by the Word, not just in what we believe, but in the practical outworking of that, how we live our lives together in Christ. And Scripture, I believe, speaks with great clarity about the importance of being together to hear the Word, to fellowship, to pray, to worship, and what's more, it hurts you and it hurts me when one of the family, part of the body, is not here. It hurts your ability to encourage me. Just by your presence sometimes, that's encouraging. It hurts your ability to stay fully engaged and connected to this body of Christ. It hurts your ability to walk wholeheartedly with the Lord. And it hurts our ability as a fellowship to do what we are meant to do together in Christ. Now, when someone loses a body part in some sort of an accident, sometimes that part can be reattached. Let's assume we're talking about a hand, okay? 
A hand is detached in an accident. A hand cut off in an accident, depending on how bad the accident was, it can be reattached. But it's crucial that it be done quickly for a couple of reasons. The hand begins to die quickly without the life-sustaining flow of blood. And that happens naturally when it's part of the body. And though the body can survive without one hand, it's not easy. It takes the development of other body parts to make up for what's missing with that hand gone to pick up the slack. And there may be some things that the body will never be able to do again without that body part, in this case, the hand. That analogy of the church as a body with parts is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite word pictures of the church. We read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is kind of a long passage. If you have your Bibles, you may want to read along with me. But bear with me as I read through this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 12, because this paints the picture that we want to get at this morning. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Do you see the fellowship of the saints in this passage of Scripture? What Paul is writing of here is a mutual dependence. No matter how great your giftings, you cannot function alone. That hand that we talked about a few minutes ago, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that that hand can do anything without being attached to the body. We live, in case you haven't noticed, we live in a culture that values independence. Our culture values independence from authority. It values independence from other people. We have the idea that I can do it myself. I don't need anybody else. We've called this from this pulpit before radical autonomy, and it's led to some very ugly challenges in our culture. While independence is certainly an asset of adulthood in some ways, it's not the highest level 
of personal maturity. There's another state of maturity. It's interdependence. Interdependence. The person who is interdependent is fully developed as an individual. He knows who he is, for what purpose God has created him, and he knows that he cannot, will not, reach the highest potential until he connects with others in ways that allow him to function at full capacity. TCF, and indeed any local church, must be a place that encourages interdependence. We bring the gift that God invests in us, and we merge it with the other people in the church with different gifts. Together, we become much more than the sum of our individual parts. The fact is, we need each other. Look around this room. We need each other. I need you. You need me. I need Dave Troutman because by his servant's life, he challenges my pride and my self-sufficiency. I need Joel and Jody and Dallas Henry because they're joyful encouragers, and I need encouragement, and I need more joy. I miss Carl Eason because the devotion to the Lord that Carl had and his devotion to sharing Christ made me look like a piker, and I don't want to ever get self-satisfied. I need Margot. I need Tammy because they ask me good questions and they stimulate my thinking and they force me to dig deeply into the Word and rely on the Holy Spirit so I don't come across looking like an idiot when they ask me these questions. I need Jerry and Charlene because their faithful service to this church in so many different ways encourages me to examine my own level of faithfulness. I need John and Megan because they are clear thinkers and amazing parents. I need Jason and Misty because their devotion and sacrifice for their family is inspiring. I need Jim Grinnell because he keeps me humble by occasionally using me as the butt of his sermon jokes. <laughs> One time Jim teased me during a sermon for being too proud to wear my reading glasses in the pulpit. Well, I've told him before, you know, that I, it's just the right distance. I don't necessarily need my reading glasses in the pulpit, but he did that anyway. I remember soon thereafter... My daughter, Laura, told me that when I wear my glasses reading at home, I look like a pastor. And I said, why? Why do you think I look like a pastor? She said, because it makes me look like Jim Grinnell. <laughs> Watch Jim with his glasses, especially he used to wear those reading glasses. Now he wears those most of the time. He does. He kind of looks like a very studious pastor. But more seriously, you know, I need Jim because his Holy Spirit-given wisdom about interpersonal relationships is really vital in helping me understand myself and others. Jim's my go-to guy. I need Jim Garrett because he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If I left you out of this list, it's not because I don't need you. It's because I don't want to preach for the next hour listing why I need all of you. So you'll thank me for not listing all of you. But I could come up with a reason I need each and every one of you in this room. There's not a body part here that is not needed. I miss you when you're not here. I find great joy in seeing you when you are here. Another body parts analogy I thought of when I was praying about this message came to me on the deck of my lake, uh, lake house, my in-law's lake house, while I was on vacation several years ago. I sat there on the deck watching the trees all around me swaying in the breeze, and I thought, you know, the church is like a tree. Now, there's a lot of scripture that says 
that individuals are like a tree, and that's true as well. We all draw our sustenance from the same soil, the water in the soil, but we need each other to get to it. I may be a branch, I may be the bark, I may be a leaf, but I'm not able to be that without the rest of the tree. I need the bottom of the tree where the roots go deep into the ground and draw the moisture that I need to survive. The bottom of the tree is thicker. It's more well-established. It's sturdier. You ever been at the bottom of a long tree, a, a big tree, and try to move it? It's just immovable. It's like a big boulder. That's my brothers and sisters who have been growing in the Lord longer than I have. Their roots are deep and they're immovable. They sway less in the wind, the winds of change, the winds of culture, the winds of daily life. And even though being at the bottom means they might see less sunshine and the rain doesn't hit them directly like it hits the top of the tree, they're closer to the real source of supply. So I need them. Now, the top of the tree sees more sunshine and gets the rain first, but it also dries the fastest after the rain and sways more in the breeze. Yet it's still connected to the tree, and it still stays green. Looking at the trees, I noticed that some branches had gotten disconnected. They were still clinging to the tree, but just barely. And the leaves on them had turned brown, and it was clear they were dying. It was just a matter of time before they dropped off the tree, and that's because they weren't connected to the source anymore. The truth remains, any way you look at this illustration, we need each other. We see earlier in 1 Corinthians where Paul used other metaphors for the church before landing on the one that we're looking at this morning, the body, one body, many parts. We see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he uses both field and building in that verse. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And uh, then in 1 Corinthians 10, before we even get to chapter 12, which we read earlier, uh, we see, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we, thank, uh, we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So, and then, of course, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see the body illustration, the body analogy once again. There are several modern-day metaphors for the church. We're only going to hit a couple of them here this morning. And, of course, the reality of this is that the church of Jesus Christ is a very big thing, and there's more ways to look at it than one. So none of these metaphors is complete, but each one illustrates a part of what the church is. Author Philip Yancey named a few, and his first metaphor is that the church is God's 12-step group. He recalls the story of Alcoholics Anonymous, a place where sinners, saved by grace, can help each other remember and access that grace. Now what's happened is the 12-step program that AA started has been applied to a lot of other kinds of addictions as well. But AA came out of a discovery that Bill Wilson made in his first meeting with a Dr. Bob Smith. On his own, Bill had stayed sober for six months until he made a trip out of town where a business deal fell through, and he was depressed. He was wandering through a hotel lobby, and he heard the familiar sounds of uh, laughter and ice in glasses, and he headed toward the bar thinking, I need a drink. And suddenly, a brand-new thought came to him. 
stopping him in his tracks. He said, no, I don't need a drink. I need another alcoholic. Walking instead toward the lobby telephones, he began the sequence of calls that put him in touch with Dr. Smith, who would become AA's co-founder. So Yancey writes, church is a place where I can say unashamedly, I don't need to sin. I need another sinner. Another sinner saved by grace can understand my battle against sin and help me remain accountable to Christ. Another analogy Yancey saw was the church as God's driver's license bureau. Now, if you've ever been to uh, one of the tag agencies, there's a lot of different kinds of people in there, aren't there? He's thinking primarily here about the diversity of God's people, just as a driver's license bureau throws together all different kinds of people looking to renew their license or get their license or renew their tag or whatever. He tells the story of when he was a child in Atlanta, and he remembers a Mrs. Peyton because she wore animals around her neck. It was a mink stole, two hairy minks biting each other, right? He also remembered a man named Mr. Ponce. He recalled him as one of the kindest people he ever knew anywhere. He had six children, and he was happiest with a child occupying his lap. He also remembered that Mr. Ponce had this enormous sprout of nasal hair that Philip Yancey, as a young boy, could see when he was seated in his lap. He'd look up, and he'd see, wow, that's a lot of hair in his nose. And later he learned how different Mrs. Mr. Ponce and Mrs. Peyton really were. Mr. Ponce drove a garbage truck, and he barely provided for his family. Mrs. Peyton's family owned a local Cadillac dealership, and she was quite wealthy. So Philip Yancey writes, When I learned these facts, I realized to my shame that as an adult, I probably would not have befriended Mr. Ponce, the garbage truck driver. I am glad, very glad, that the Church of Jesus Christ in my childhood included both of these friends. I now see that the church should be an environment where both Mrs. Peyton of the hairy stole and Mr. Ponce of the hairy nose feel equally welcome. <laughs> the truth is clear. Our human need for love, for fellowship, for help in any circumstance is best met in a community like TCF, which has from the world's viewpoint the greatest and the least. Think about this. The same faith that excited such great minds as John Milton and C.S. Lewis to write some of the greatest literature in history was originally entrusted to simple peasants. It's likely that some of the original disciples couldn't even read or write. We at TCF are a little corner of God's family. The church isn't an institution. It's a family. Institutions are held together by status and rank. Soldiers in armies know exactly where they rank. In business, there's salary and there's title that tells you exactly where you fit in in a business setting. I actually once worked for a guy who had a desk that was on a little bit of a raised platform, and he had soft chairs in front of his desk so that when you sat talking to him in his office, you were looking up at him like that. And that was very much by design. He wanted you to know that he was in charge and you were just a lowly peon. In an institution, status derives from performance. In families, status works differently. A child has family rights solely by virtue of birth. 
an underachieving or a difficult child is not kicked out of a family. In fact, a child who produces very little for whatever reason may actually get more attention than his brothers or sisters, or healthier siblings. In God's family, we are clearly told there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All these distinctions were important in the institutions of Jesus' day. Family is the one human institution we have no choice about. We get in simply by being born. Because of this, you get thrown together with strange and unlike people. If you know the Thorpes, you know that Olivia is not much like Andrew. If you know the Feathers, you know that Faith is not at all like Wes. If you know the Failers, you know Evangeline is not very much like Johnny. But they're family, and they're together, and they love and they accept each other. So church is like a family, but there's one significant difference. Where Faith didn't voluntarily choose Wes as her brother, in church we're the body of Christ, and we choose to band together with a strange group of people solely because of our common bond in Jesus Christ. We were adopted into his kingdom by God's choice, and we adopt our local church by our choice. God gives us that choice. Henry Nguyen once described a community as a place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Another story helps illustrate how important each member of the body is. There was a mountain village in Europe several centuries ago, and a nobleman wondered what legacy he should leave to the townspeople. So finally, he decided to build a church for a legacy. The complete plans for the church were kept secret, and when people gathered after the church was built, they marveled at the church's beauty and completeness. But following many comments of praise, what a great place this is. Thank you very much. One observer inquired, but where are the lamps? How will the church be lighted? The nobleman pointed to some brackets all around the walls of the church, and then he gave to each family a lamp to be carried to the worship service and hung on the wall. Each time you are here, he told them, the area where you are seated will be lighted, he explained. Each time you are not here, that area will be left dark. Whenever you fail to come to church, some part of God's house will be dark. So let's again, let's look around the room and think about it. When you're here, you're lighting the church. When you're not, there's a corner of the church that's dark. We need each other. When you're not here, something is missing. Using the analogy of the story we just heard, it's darker here when you're not here. This leads to another passage of Scripture, which is also probably pretty familiar, but it relates to this whole issue. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the closer we get to the Lord's return, the more and more we need each other. He talked about habits here. He talked about encouraging one another. It says, Encourage one another. Consider, think about how you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. 
We cannot do that apart from being with each other, often, regularly, faithfully. It's virtually impossible to be a Christian in isolation. Why do we need to be here? Why is it important for us to be here regularly? Well, there are several reasons, and we've cited some of them. But at least one reason is that we are in a war. The enemy of our souls doesn't much like it when we are together and likes it even less when we are effective in advancing God's kingdom because we're together. We cannot fight the good fight of faith alone. We must do it with each other. Ultimately, the leaders of TCF want the individuals in this fellowship to hear from God for themselves about the priorities in their lives. We don't want to make decisions about where you go and what you do, but we do really want you to be hearing the word of the Lord. And we trust that hearing the word of God helps you do just that. If you miss church for whatever reason, it has absolutely no standing, no impact, I should say, on your standing before God. And even though for reasons we've already discussed we miss you when you're not here, it has no impact on your standing with these, your brothers and sisters in Christ at TCF. But here's the thing. When you get in the habit of not meeting together with us, and that's why I told you about I got in the habit of not being part of a house church, and it took me four years to get back into it. When you get in the habit of not meeting together, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you see if that really reflects the priority that you put on this commandment to not forsake meeting together. Clearly, there are good habits and there are bad habits, but the formation of both is very similar. You form good or bad habits by doing something again and again and again and again until it's ingrained in you. Now, I hate to exercise, but I'm in the habit of doing it. So I do it about six days every week. When I don't, for whatever reason, I actually miss it. I just told you I hate it, but then I miss it when I don't get to do it. How does that make sense? Why? Not because I enjoy it, because I have a hard time not going to exercise because it's a habit. There's good habits and bad habits, and good habits are almost as hard to break as bad habits. So I don't want anybody coming up to me after the service this morning and saying, gee, Bill, do you think such and such is a good reason for me to miss church? The particulars are not nearly as important as heart's attitude. What is our priority? Is being with the saints at TCF, hearing the word of God preached, praying together, worshiping together, is it important to us? Is it important to you? I believe the word clearly teaches that being together with the saints is to be a top priority for our lives. Is it a priority for you? I want to close with a passage from Ephesians, and I want you to note how many times in this short passage from Ephesians chapter 2 that it talks about being together, using those words or other words similar Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself 
as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of joining with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the very clear picture in Scripture of your church, and it is your church. It's not our church, it's your church, but you picture it as a body, one body, many parts. We thank you that we can be a small part of the body of Christ. We can be a small part of this fellowship, and you choose to use us, Father. Help us to choose to be a vital part of this fellowship because of what you've done in us as a response to your grace, Father, not as a response to some law, but as a response to your grace because we want to be here. We want to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to serve you. Build that heart in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.